Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the Coalition's Managing Editor, and today we'll hear about Navajo language classes being taught in a Colorado high school. Indigenous languages need more representation here in this part of the country. We're in the Southwest. We should have all the languages here. Community members in Colorado's Roaring Fork Valley are trying to support a group of newly arrived migrants. The truth is, we are supporting our families in Venezuela. If we don't make money here, our families aren't going to eat in Venezuela. Two weeks of work here and we're feeding our families and sending people to get medical attention back at home. An effort is underway to stop naming birds after people. To name birds after people who were slaveholders is doubly offensive. And a new book, True West, Myth and Mending on the Far Side of America. I think what is best is for us to understand our myths and then to be able to unpack them. From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. In addition to Spanish and French classes, Durango High School in Southern Colorado has added a new language course this year. But it's not a foreign language. Clark Adamidas of KSUT and KSJD reports on the school's decision to create a Navajo language class. It's 8.10 a.m. on a Thursday morning at Durango High School, and Elfrida Begay has her students on their feet and she's coaching them how to say the anatomical term for waste in Navajo. Simon says, Shani, Shani, your waste. As Begay teaches students words for various body parts, she has them move their bodies. Simon says, Shawast, stretch your arms, stretch your arms right here. Reach, 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 reach. First period, barely nine o'clock. It's the first Navajo language class ever at Durango High School. And according to Durango's 9R School District, it's the first public school to teach Navajo in the state of Colorado. Begay started at Durango High School five years ago as an administrative assistant. But even before she was employed there, she was pushing Navajo language instruction. In my interview, I had said my long-term goal would be to establish Navajo language here. So um, I pushed it. (laughs) As an undergraduate at Fort Lewis in the 2000s, Begay noticed that Navajo language was being taught by non-native instructors. He was a white guy. He he retired now. I don't remember his name. Listening to him and seeing him teach, and I was thinking, like, I can do this. Like, I can totally do this. But in order to become a teacher, Begay needed a master's degree in bilingual education and a certificate from the Navajo Nation allowing her to teach the language. The school hired her earlier this year and approved her class for this fall semester. Elfrida was willing to go above and beyond to get the certifications because at the end of the day, it's what's best for kids. Just, it's pretty awesome. Rachel Colesman is a vice principal at Durango High School. It's such a cool class, such a different way of learning, very steeped in the oral tradition. You know, like what is the true meaning behind the words and behind the sounds? Everything is is tied together. And for those students that often struggle with the foreign language, it's just that approach oftentimes works much, much better for them. 
Based on the success of this class, Elfrida Begay will continue to teach Navajo next year with an introductory and a level two class. Colesman says the classes are a commitment to meeting the needs of Navajo students. We just really were very passionate about being able to offer something to our students because at the end of the day, the reservation's a ways off and many of them have family down in Window Rock and Shiprock area. And so we wanted to bring a little piece of home here because this is home for them as well. Why do you think it hasn't happened sooner um, in the school district? That's a loaded question. Um, no, it's, it's a great question. Um, I don't think the timing was right in the past. Um, we, there, wasn't the, there wasn't the person that was passionate about pushing it forward. Um, there wasn't always, I'm, and I'll just name it, there, there wasn't always the focus on, on the equity and diversity. Um, and, you know, I, I applaud um, Durango 9R for, for taking a lead in, in that work of creating a, a space where all cultures and backgrounds feel welcome, um, because that's not always been the case in this area. So really quickly, the sh the S section there is partly ship me, ship. Elfrida Begay runs her students through phonetics, breaking the words down into parts. Um, the do the L, if, you, if you're saying it right, you're spitting. Watching Begay move among her students, it's clear she's in her element teaching Navajo. Do is the SH, shift me. I am super excited to be given this opportunity. Um, at the same time, it's like it's about darn time that we have something available within indigenous culture, within indigenous language here in Durango, especially since we're just an hour north of Navajo country. Indigenous languages need more representation here in this part of the country. We're in the southwest. We should have all the languages here. Luca, math, bright colors. Begay's goal is for students who take four years of Navajo language classes to earn a seal of biliteracy. For KSUT and KSJD, I'm Clark Adamitis. Community members in Carbondale, Colorado, have been rallying around a group of migrants who arrived about a month ago. Aspen Public Radio's Hallie Zander and Eleanor Bennett have been reporting on the situation. Well, Hallie, let's begin. I'd like to ask when the group showed up and also where have they come from? Well, not everyone showed up at the exact same time. A number of the people we've talked to arrived in Denver from other cities like El Paso or New York or Chicago over the last few weeks and months. And they arrived here mostly as individuals and discovered that there were people in similar situations in Carbondale and were able to uh, kind of find some strength in numbers. At first, in August and September, when people were arriving, most people were sleeping in cars or on the street near the entrance to Carbondale. But since then, over the past few weeks, they have found some temporary shelter at the town's community center. Although at this point, it's uh, an imperfect type of shelter. There's not access to a kitchen or showers. So the town and a number of other community organizations are trying to find better housing solutions. So is it mostly folks from Colombia and Venezuela or are there other nationalities also? 
Well, Voces Unidas is a local Latino advocacy organization based in Glenwood Springs. And when they first discovered that this group of migrants was here in Carbondale, unhoused, they went down to where a lot of them were staying at the time and did a needs assessment. So they asked people what types of resources they needed most and what they were looking for, where they came from. And the needs assessment showed that the vast majority of people were from Venezuela, but they did note that one person was from Colombia. That was back when there were only 80 migrants here in Carbondale at the time uh, as a part of this group. And that has since grown to uh, over 100 people. Well, Eleanor, I know yourself and Hallie have been talking to some of these folks. Can you share any of their stories as to why they're here? So there's a group of four committee members who are representing the interests of their peers, and we spoke with a few of them on Sunday. So far, everyone we've talked to has told us they came here to find work and send money home to support their families. One man we spoke with, his name is Astrobal Alvarado. He's sending money home to support his wife and kids and his parents and the rest of his family. He also said he was impacted by political corruption and threats of violence. Specifically, he worked in the military, and he says he started getting death threats from his higher-ups there. We're also hoping to talk next week with a mother who's staying in temporary housing in Aspen. She's there with her partner and kids. The Sopra Sun, a local newspaper in our valley, reported last week that she identifies with the LGBTQ community. And she told reporters that the paper that life in Venezuela is especially hard for gay citizens, and she's in search for another life. Yeah, and on Sunday I spoke with Edwin Jimenez. He has a whole family in Venezuela that he used to live with, and they're suffering from a lot of health issues right now, including diabetes, high blood pressure, and he said he couldn't afford their medical care back home, so he decided to make the trek to the United States. Here's what Edwin told us through an interpreter. The truth is, we are supporting our families in Venezuela. If we don't make money here, our families aren't going to eat in Venezuela. Two weeks of work here, and we're feeding our families and sending people to get medical attention back at home. And Edwin said he made about $100 a month in Venezuela, which just wasn't enough to cover all of the medical expenses he had. And he feels really personally responsible for caring for all of his family members. And when he's able to find work here in the Roaring Fork Valley, he's making about $100 a day. Uh, and he's sending about 40 to 50 percent of all the money he makes here back home. So it's being here and being able to work here has really been a service to his family. But I think the main thing about almost everyone that we spoke to is that they want to work. They want steady, reliable jobs. They told us that they're thankful that while they're applying for work permits and temporary protected status, they have hot food and some shelter, but they really want to be able to pay their own way and not rely so much on this community support. Well, you mentioned this nonprofit that's been helping this group out. But overall, though, what has been the local impact on, say, social services and other local groups trying to help this group of migrants? Yeah, absolutely. In terms of things like shelter and food, there's been an immediate response from a lot of individual organizations and government leaders here in our valley Earlier this month, our state representative, Elizabeth Velasco, and and the advocacy group, Voces Unidas, they were the first to convene nonprofits and the town of Carbondale to meet with the new arrivals who were at the time sleeping outside or in their cars under the bridge, like Hallie mentioned earlier. The advocacy group also hired a new emergency response person to coordinate hot meals. 
A local food pantry has also been dropping off sort of non-perishable food. And a nonprofit center in Carbondale opened its doors as an emergency shelter. But the shelter only holds about 60 people and is now at capacity. They've been turning away since Wednesday last week, about five people each night. And so far, no one has offered another alternative. A regional coalition that helps find shelter for people experiencing homelessness in our area is planning this week to get folks on a wait list for housing. But that list already has about 200 people on it. Those are folks that were already experiencing homelessness in our three-county area. The nonprofit center that's offering emergency shelter and the advocacy group say they're doing what they can to help facilitate a lot of these efforts, but neither of them get funding to provide direct services like food and shelter. Here's Vosas Unidas Executive Director Alex Sanchez. This is not going to work and people will die at the end of the day if we continue to see uh, this lack of structure and coordination. And so Sanchez and others have been calling on regional governments and social service groups in our area to come together to coordinate a more cohesive emergency response. Well, Hallie, I know there are families with children amongst this. And so what has been the impact on local schools? Right. Well, schools are starting to show up to enroll the kids who are a part of the group into school. It is their constitutional duty to enroll kids in classes immediately when their families are experiencing homelessness, regardless of their immigration status and regardless of whether or not they have documentation that would normally be required to enroll students in school. But they're also trying to connect families with a number of social services that are better equipped to provide food and shelter. Here's Kelly Medina. She's the director of the Rung Fork School District's Family Resource Center. This isn't a new issue. It's just it's getting harder and harder in the Valley to find housing. It's an issue that's bigger than the school district, right? It's going to take the whole community to be able to figure out housing solutions that support all of our families here. And the Rowing Fork School District says these new arrivals enrolling in school are joining the 105 unhoused students already taking classes in the district. And the RE2 School District, which is a little farther down Valley, didn't have numbers on that, but said there has been an influx of new students arriving from different countries. Well, aside from these local nonprofits and, and local official agencies, what has been the local reaction to all of this? Yeah. So, so far, it seems a lot of people are interested in showing up to support the group. There was a clothing drive on Saturday and there were tables filled with winter clothes, including jackets, boots, hats and scarves. Uh, And a number of individuals and other groups have cooked or brought hot meals almost every night. But like Eleanor said, there's not a whole lot of coordination happening for all the folks who want to help. And some of the volunteers on Saturday during the clothing drive said that they were missing some key items like long underwear and base layers that can help get a lot of these new arrivals through the winter. And we've also heard from a few local government leaders that they've gotten some community concerns about people arriving, especially once they hear that there's shelter and support here. There's a serious housing shortage, as we mentioned earlier, here in our valley already. And one county commissioner told us they weren't able to share possible emergency shelter locations they've identified for fear of backlash from neighbors living in those areas. But like Hallie says, it seems like those are the outliers and most folks want to support and welcome the newcomers, at least until they get their feet on the ground. And some local leaders have told us that developing the current emergency response could actually help our community create a better strategy to serve the current homeless population and people experiencing things like food insecurity and other inequities. It seems like from the few nonprofits that I've 
called or talked to since this crisis emerged in our community that a lot of nonprofits seem pretty limited in their scope or capacity to handle a lot, like a hundred new people all at once. I think that's partially why we're struggling to see anyone come out as a leader to take control and and to support this group. But also, you know, local government leaders have told us that this issue, like helping settle new migrants into the United States, is not a local Carbondale issue. It's not something that we're struggling to organize. It's something that the state is struggling to organize. It's something that the federal government is struggling to organize. So while we can place blame or point fingers, like there isn't really a model to go after at this point, it seems. Maybe there is. Maybe there are people out there doing it the right way, and we'd love to see that. But there is a lot of bureaucracy that's that's making it hard to organize everybody appropriately. Well, Hallie Zander and Eleanor Bennett with Aspen Public Radio, their reporting on this issue is available at aspenpublicradio.org. Eleanor and Hallie, thank you both so much for taking time to talk to us. Thanks, Maeve. Thanks for having us on. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. The American Ornithological Society recently announced that it will change all English bird names currently named after people within its geographic jurisdiction. The organization says this is an effort to be more inclusive and to right past wrongs. On KGNU's science show How on Earth, Shelley Schlender spoke with a Colorado naturalist who has been advocating for this for many years. Steve Jones is a Boulder, Colorado environmental consultant and breeding bird ecologist. He's been interviewed by the New York Times about ecology. He's won awards for his ornithology, and he's the author of several books on birds and nature. He's been a president of the Boulder County Nature Association and Boulder County Audubon. Welcome to the studio, Steve. Thanks. What kind of things would you like to say about this move to rename birds? I've led field trips for 50 years, and I've had people who come on my trips and say, can we just watch the birds and not name them? They say that naming them reduces them somehow, and there are actually some people who prefer not to give any name to any bird. And no one actually officially names birds. It's by agreement. People get together and they say, oh, that one over there with the red head, maybe we could just call that one a red-headed woodpecker. But even the American Ornithological Society doesn't have the authority to name birds. They're a group where various people who are interested in birds have joined together and said, let's see if we can standardize some of this so we can talk to one another about birds. You know, Steve, bird watching is one of the most popular sports around the world. And perhaps the names are just a way to get it so that people can look them up in books and see what their range is, what they like to eat, what are the details of how they look. Is that one of the reasons to name birds? I think so. It's so we can talk to one another. And in various parts of the world, the names aren't really standardized much at all. And you think about plants, we do not have standard common names for plants, even in the United States. 
we have botanical groups that have standardized the scientific names to an extent, but people disagree about those as well. So birds are kind of unique in this way, mammals too, in that we tend to use the same names, at least all over North America, to describe the same birds. And of course, that's very useful. You can communicate with people. What we're talking about here, though, is how can we describe birds in a way that dignifies birds instead of diminishes them. That's an interesting point, Steve, because we've gone together for many years to record the Nature Almanac feature on KGNU about what's happening in the natural world. For years, I've heard you have conversations with your colleagues about how you'd rather not see birds named for the people who shot them and were the first person to get them as a stuffed animal into a museum. Well, that's part of it. In Boulder Rights of Nature, which is one of the organizations I'm involved with, we believe that all individual species have dignity and they have the right to thrive and flourish. And we would think of how would I like to be named? I certainly don't want to be named after someone who shot my sister, for example. But it's also the possessiveness. There's a bird here in Boulder County that most everyone has seen, which is called Cooper's Hawk. And one of our experts said, well, why don't we just change it to Cooper Hawk? Then it won't be possessive anymore. But Mm -hmm. Cooper has nothing to do with the ethos of that hawk. So Cooper's Hawk was named by somebody named Cooper. Actually, it was named after Cooper by someone who respected Cooper, who was a well-known naturalist. I'd like to be able to name the name in such a way that it evokes who that bird is and what it does. And so the term we're using for that bird is cackling woodland hawk. It has a beautiful, very strident cackling call, which is unusual for a hawk. It sounds like a woodpecker. And it isn't a deep forest hawk, and it isn't a prairie hawk. It likes open woodlands. So they're a medium-sized hawk. And they hang out around bird feeders in town because they like to eat songbirds. So if you have a bird feeder, you probably have a Cooper's hawk nearby. 150 or more bird names have been changed in the past two decades in North America by the American Ornithological Society. Well, one of the first ones was a bird that was previously known as Old Squaw. I don't think anyone listening is going to say it's controversial to change the name of that bird. It's offensive. Yes. But others were changed because scientists found out other information about the bird, so they felt another name would be more appropriate. This is going on all the time. Yes, they're talking about changing the American Ornithological Society names for 80 species. And that's a minority of the ones that have been changed in the last two decades. And again, if you go to Mexico and you see what I was referring to as a cackling woodland hawk in Mexico, your guide will use a name you've never heard before. And for somebody who's trying to look up what that bird looks like or where it may have come from, maybe a description would be better anyway. It would make it easier to identify it, but how do we use names as a species? We use names to honor people, and I think our names for everything should honor those individuals. If you're naming a bird, why not do something to honor your connection to that bird? Not my connection. How about honoring that bird's connection to the earth? But to name birds after people who were slaveholders is doubly offensive. I mean, that's really where a lot of this recent push began with the Me Too movement and some other movements to eliminate racism and eliminate that kind of just blatant derogatory use of names in our society. Steve Jones is a Boulder naturalist. He's been speaking to us about the new move to name more birds by changing their name away from a person 
Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Shelley. You can hear an extended interview with Steve Jones on renaming birds at howonearthradio.org. And thanks to KGNU's Shelley Schlender for that report. In her new book, True West, Myth and Mending on the Far Side of America, author and historian Betsy Gaines Quammen examines the museum of myth that the American West has grown up in. KOTO's Julia Caulfield brings us this report. Betsy Gaines Quammen moved to the West with the myth of wilderness. I moved to Colorado when I was uh, 18 years old because I wanted to be in the mountains. Quammen is a historian and writer. In her new book, True West, Myth and Mending on the Far Side of America, she examines what she calls the museum of myth that the American West has grown up in. I had the myth of kind of wilderness, which we now know, you know, um, this idea that wilderness was kind of an untouched and untrammeled um, place is just not true. I mean, we've had, you know, um, indigenous people live in, quote unquote, wilderness areas since time immemorial. True West follows as a companion piece for her 2020 book, looking at religious conservatism and fights for public lands. In part addressing changes from the pandemic, Kwaman says she had two driving forces behind her inquiry. I wanted to look at the various mythologies that motivate people both living in the West and people moving to the West and how they see the land through these mythologies, whether it's the cowboy myth or uh, the idea that the West is hale and hearty and healthy. Um, Like we saw so many people coming West during COVID because somehow it was healthier. We saw people deciding after watching the show Yellowstone, which became unbelievably popular during COVID, that they would just pull up stakes and move West and create a ranching lifestyle that had very little to do with the reality of the West. Second, she wanted to look at people who moved West to create like-minded communities. People moving West, particularly in Montana and Idaho, um, to create homelands or front lines, this Christian nationalist movement that that really focused on the Idaho panhandle in western Montana, where people were coming to create these communities of like-minded people and um, await a big event, whether it was a religious event or whether it's impending civil war. Kwaman will be in Telluride this week as part of the Wilkinson Public Library's Authors Uncovered series. I think we need to acknowledge the fact that as humans, we live among myths. We are a myth-making species. And so we do have myths that are foundational to the way that we see things. But um, what happened, I believe, during pandemic and during this period of political polarization, which, which we've been seeing over the last several years, is that we began to live in a, an environment of toxic myths. Over the course of her book, Kwaman spoke with over 100 people, finding their myths and realities in the West. From, um, you know, one of two black men living in a tiny town in Montana to um, a queer bookstore owners and how they became this really important uh, community um, touchstone and center for kids during COVID um, to a rancher in eastern Montana who's tremendously 
uh, conservative. Kwame notes the concept of myth isn't inherently wrong. It's how we engage with them. I think what is best is for us to understand our myths and then to be able to unpack them. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, that um, myths, myths are important, but I also think that uh, conversation around myths or unexamined myths are really, they can be dangerous. Uh, and, and, and so it is really important for us to, to be in dialogue, to challenge our myths, and to, um, and to sort of understand where they come from. For KOTO and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Julia Caulfield. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to Clark Adamidas of KSUT and KSJD, Eleanor Bennett and Hallie Zander at Aspen Public Radio, Shelley Schlender at KGNU and Julia Caulfield at KOTO for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.